Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, that's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we had the UFC on ESPN over the weekend. Armand Sarukian comes out and gets an impressive knockout over Benil Dariush just about one minute into the first round. In the co-main event there, Jalen Turner comes in on short notice. KO's Bobby Green almost as fast. That one took a shade under three minutes into the first round. Elsewhere, we had that BKFC 56 event. Mike Perry defeats Eddie Alvarez via corner stoppage after the second round. This is all stuff we're going to talk about this week on the proper, break it all down and get into some other stuff toward the end of the show. First of all, though, how you doing? How you doing this week? Well, Chad, you know how it seemed like I was in one state of sickness or another for basically all of November? Yes. It's come to my attention that maybe it was not the best choice I could have made, given that situation, to then go stand out in the snow and watch the Montana Grizzlies win their playoff game on Saturday night. You feeling like you had a little bit of a relapse? I don't feel like I've I took steps forward in my health. You think as a result uh, of that decision? Have you backslid a little bit? Possibly. Don't feel great. I'm I'm telling you this right now. I'm being upfront with you and with all the listeners out there that I am soldiering through this one. Okay. Wow. Well, you know what though? Kind of worth it to be out there in the damn snow globe that was Washington Grizzly Stadium watching our beloved Grizz just put a put a old-fashioned country ass whooping on Delaware. Yeah, they did do that. A long way to travel for the Delaware Blue Hens to then turn around and have to travel home. 
Fighting so, blue hands. Fighting blue hands. All right. Uh, let's get into some of this MMA talk this week. First, a reminder that you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and your podcast libraries. But if you're not satisfied by this, you can find Ben Folks and myself all week over on Patreon. Hit us up over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. Get loads of extra audio and video content, as well as access to our official Discord message board. The coolest people in MMA are constantly chatting it up over there on any number of topics. The only rule on the message board, no assholes. Right now, we're offering seven-day free trials at our $5 level. You can jump on board absolutely free. Check out all the content happening over there. Take a look, bathe your ears in the goodness, and then decide if you want to join up for real. Everybody knows by now this show is a completely independent podcast. We can only keep making it with your support. Help keep the CME alive by joining up to become part of the awesome community over there at patreon.com slash co-main event. Another way you could support the show is by going to our website, comainevent.com, and clicking the link that says merchandise. That'll get you into our shop. We've had a lot of people, Ben, so far jump on and do the smart thing. Get their Christmas shopping out of the way early by buying a daddest man on the planet mug for that guy in their life that they don't know what else to get them. Those people, they're going to receive their mugs in plenty of time for Christmas. Now, we're cutting it a little close here. But I have a feeling that the fulfillment centers could still get your mugs out and to you before Christmas if you go over there and pick one up for your dad, your brother, you know, a cousin, a son, whatever. Send them a daddest man on the planet coffee mug and get yourself in good with them this holiday season. What you're saying is that people, if they hear the sound of your voice right now, should act, lest it be too late. That's correct. Now is the time to get on board with that again comainevent.com slash shop will get you in there as always we partner with our guys at superconductor on the shop they are a brand and design studio from portland oregon we can't recommend them highly enough for all your design needs hit them up at studiosuperconductor.com or on instagram at studio superconductor this week we got music from our guy james aka the funk soul brother a retired MMA fighter and hip-hop producer living in Seoul. He sent us some of his new tracks a little while ago, so we're excited to keep busting those out for you. If you like what you hear on the show, you can check out more at Instagram.com slash FSB Beats or on YouTube at slash C slash Funk Soul Brother Beats. And as everybody knows by now, the word soul in Funk Soul Brother is S-E-O-U-L. You see what he did there? Yeah, everybody knows that by now. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Armand Sarukian and Bobby Green got into it at the UFC host hotel last week leading up to this fight night down there in Austin, Texas. Then both guys went out there and had very different results. And in round number two, all hail Mike Perry, king of violence. Mike Perry plus BKFC equals true love forever. And in round number three, Dana White ain't sweating the Bellator PFL merger because he says no one could ever compete with the UFC, which is maybe not the smartest thing to say when your company seems to be losing a giant class action antitrust lawsuit. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's get into a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. 
Ben, I swear this is the last update about my 11-year-old daughter's personal grooming habits. But I think this one's pretty cool. Uh, after the last couple of weeks of us telling the people at home that my daughter had stolen my Fulton and Rourke fragrances and was using them for herself, our guy Kevin, one of the owners over there at the company, he hit me up and called my daughter, quote, the most successful celebrity endorser that Fulton and Rourke has ever had. So he offered to send her another bottle straight to our home of her favorite scent, which I think is pretty nice. Wow. Sounds like uh, you kind of lost the war on that one. Yeah, no, you're right. That might be true. But I think it also goes to show one of the things we keep saying about Fulton and Rourke. Not only do they make the finest personal grooming products on the market, but they're great guys, man. Uh, I use their stuff every day. I guess my daughter now uses their stuff every day. And uh, they're the kind of people who deserve your support, which is why we are so happy that they continue to sponsor the CME. That's right. And if you're interested in Fulton and Rourke, an easy way to check out their stuff are those fragrance discovery sets we keep telling you about. In the discovery sets, they'll send you small samples of a bunch of their different scents so you can figure out which ones you like before buying anything full-sized. The discovery sets also come with a coupon code. So if you do find anything you like, use that code and the samples were basically free. Not only that, but if you find yourself in any trouble, Fulton and Rourke have a customer service person who is an actual living, breathing human being, and they can help you out too. Of course, co-main event podcast customers can save 20% with the code CME20. Just go to FultonandRourke.com. That's FultonandRourke.com. And again, CME20, CME20. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from... We were all young and wild once like Miley Cyrus. Okay. It's an interesting choice for a a name. They write, is Davison Figueredo an instant title threat at bantamweight? Now, Ben, we talked last week on the Power Hour over on the Patreon page that we didn't necessarily understand these odds coming into Davison Figueredo's men's bantamweight debut against Rob Font. Figueredo was a little bit of an underdog headed into that fight and neither of us knew quite what to make of that and frankly he goes out there proves us right you know i gotta toot our horn when we're right out here since it hardly ever happens uh he defeats rob font by unanimous decision 30 27s across the board this was kind of one of those fights where the both guys are landing both guys are getting into it pretty good but it just seemed like davis and figueredo was landing the harder shots he stunned Rob Font, seemed to rock him a little bit a couple times in this fight, and uh, he's able to to salt away the victory here. I thought it was an impressive performance from Davis and Figueredo, and I would say, yes, he is an instant title threat at bantamweight, but he's also not at the front of the line. We got some stuff we got to take care of up there atop the men's bantamweight division, so he's going to have to wait a little while for that, and I would assume in the interim, ha <laughs> I don't love saying interim as it no. pertains to any title picture in the UFC but in the meantime maybe that's a better choice of words he's probably going to have to fight once maybe twice more and that I think that'll give us uh, a much better idea of exactly what we're dealing with in Davis and Figueredo up there at 135 pounds yeah I feel like when you first go up to the new weight class that first fight there it doesn't necessarily tell us that you are an uncrowned king there what it does We can find out if it was a terrible idea, but we can't yet find out if it was the answer to all your your questions. You know, if you go up there and you just look undersized and you get overpowered and everything, and then we kind of might go, okay, sure. 
it, this isn't going to work out. You go up there, you look good, you get a good solid win. We go, okay, there's something to build off of, but we might want to pump the brakes just before we go out there. Because especially just like when you're dealing with a question of is the size difference going to matter, it matters differently according to different stylistic matchups that you might face up there. And you're right that there's a lot of other pending business. And what it will really come down to is sort of like opportunities where when they come up and where you fit into them. Uh, because there are a lot of different options that the UFC has for how to make some of these fights. One of the things Davis and Figueredo obviously had going for him, but at the same time, maybe it had hampered him at times was that he was a huge man at flyweight. And sometimes he would fade a little bit down the stretch. The weight cut was pretty tough. I think for him to get down there to 125. And I think, you know, at least the maiden voyage at bantamweight here against Rob font, he didn't seem like he was fading at least into the third round. He also didn't necessarily seem like he would enjoy the tremendous physical advantage at 135 than he did at 125 because he and Rob font, looked to be roughly the same size. And I don't necessarily think of Rob Font as a huge bantamweight. So it remains to be th- to be seen, I think, how Davis and Figueredo's skills and everything else stack up at bantamweight. But I think this was an impressive performance for him. It was We were saying this last week also. It was nice just to see him go out there and fight someone not named Brandon Moreno. Yeah. Because the last time he did that had been November 21st, 2020, when he defended his flyweight championship against Alex Perez at UFC 255, he spent approximately the next two years only fighting Brandon Moreno. So, you know, new life, I think, in more ways than one for Davison Figueredo to go up there to bantamweight and try his hand. And if nothing else, he got a top 10 win. Rob Font came into this fight ranked number 10 at men's bantamweight. So to go out there and get a unanimous decision where they think you won every round, not a terrible uh beginning for yourself in that division. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see where it goes from here. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from the Corgi King who writes at one point, Kelvin Gastelum seemed like he had the potential to be a real contender. While he has uh, shown flashes of brilliance, his development really seems to have stalled. Sean Brady was probably always going to be a tough matchup, but Kelvin looked sloppy and undisciplined. Has Kelvin simply hit his ceiling as a fighter? Ben, what do you think? Is it time now? to pour one out for Kelvin Gastelum, potential title contender? I mean, hasn't the problem for Kelvin Gastelum in one way or another kind of always been consistency? You know, Consistency that, and that he's just kind of a weird tweener, unfortunately for yeah. him. Yeah, but here we were thinking, you know, you made welterweight, and as has pointed out, made welterweight during the holiday season. <laughs> Not the easiest thing to do for a guy who, you know, in his 30s now. Um but also, it's not like he got a super easy assignment here to go out there and take on Sean Brady. Like, you know, Sean Brady had a lot of momentum halted when he, when he lost uh, lost his first pro fight uh, there recently. But, like, Sean Brady's still, still quite good. Yeah. So, I don't know if losing to Sean Brady means you suck and should give it up. But is Kelvin Gastelum going to be fighting for any UFC titles in the near future? Probably not. One of the things that I feel like we forget about Kelvin Gastelum and not necessarily to try to make a case for him as a title contender, because I would be kind of surprised if he works his way up to that level at this point. He's only 32, though, which I think speaks to 
how young he was when he got yeah. in this game because it feels like Kelvin Gastelum has been around forever. And here he is, only a 32-year-old man. He, he, I think uh, the Corgi King is right in some regards here. You knew he was going to catch a hot one against Sean Brady because obviously, as you mentioned, he was coming in after suffering his first career loss to Bilal Muhammad back at UFC 280 and won a fight that frankly just wasn't that close. Prior to that, you know, Sean Brady had been 15-0. and 0. He had a lot of uh, heat around him as a fast up-and-coming prospect. So you go out there and you get stopped by Bilal. You know you're going to want to come back in the next one and prove that you weren't just some kind of overhyped uh, paper tiger in a way. You wanted to get this win over Kelvin Gastelum, and then he goes out there, basically just smothers the guy over the course of three rounds to get the uh, third round submission victory. I feel bad for Kelvin Gastelum because I don't want to sit here and say stick a fork in him because the man's only 32 years old. But at the same time, we've seen a lot. We have seen a lot for Kelvin Gastelum, and you are right. It doesn't seem like he's been able to really have a lot of consistency, especially uh, the last eight years or so. And at this point, he is what? He's two and six in his last eight fights. So that ain't great. I think he's always going to be around as long as he wants to be. I think he's going to be a guy who will be a good litmus test, a guy who's a good measuring stick for a lot of guys. But I don't know, man. I just don't think he is... uh, I don't think he's elite level at this point. I think Bare Knuckle FC is out there rubbing their hands together at the thought of Kelvin Gastelum being released from the UFC at some point. Stop it. Stop it. Not. Don't I you say not. stuff like that. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy, who writes, Misha fucking Tate, looking like a suffocating world beater living up to her OG Strike Force nickname. I wasn't always a fan, and tonight she made me cry. And I just want to hang out with her over ice cream and pizza. Really nice to see one of the good ones get a win and blitz through a must-win fight. This was a feel-good win, I think, for Misha Tate over Julia Avila in the featured prelim of this UFC on ESPN. Card dominated over three rounds, comes out in the third, grabs that face crank submission to get the win. And you could kind of tell, you could kind of tell how much this one meant to Misha Tate when she jumps on the mic after it's over. She does, in fact, promise to take her kids out for pizza and ice cream and everything else. Uh, It might be a little weird if Eric Murphy showed up to the family gathering, but at the same time, I understand the excitement. It was good to see Misha Tate go out there. Yeah, at this point, one of the old OGs of this shit and uh, get a big win when she needed one. Yeah, and, you know, I think that... Misha Tate, over the many iterations of her career, has sometimes struggled, as fighters will, uh, with a bit of an identity crisis of exactly what your strengths are, what what you ought to be looking to do out there. And, you know, as you add new stuff to the, the toolbox, sometimes we've seen fighters want to lean on that stuff too much. Um, but sort of a gritty wrestler and opportunistic submission grabber is maybe not the worst way for Misha Tate to go about it. I appreciate kind of what she said about understanding that at this point in her career, not necessarily going out there thinking this one is going to be the last one, but always knowing any of these could be the last one, that there, however many you might think you realistically have left in you, there are more yesterdays than tomorrows for you in this sport. And I like the idea of her seeing what she can do with that, but also sort of... 
the nearness of the end maybe making her appreciate each one a little more. Yeah. Speaking of a person who tried their hand at flyweight and then moved up to bantamweight, Misha Tate grabs this much-needed win back in her old division. She is now 2-4 and four in her last six, 37 years old, so I think you're right. She's right. Any one of these could be the last one, but it is and was nice to see her go out there and win, I thought. Next question this week comes to us from the Chili Cheese Chimpanzee. So okay. he okay. Or, or she or they write... Well, it seems like Ihor Poteria. Now, see, I've always said Ihor Poteria, but maybe that's just my dumb American mouth. I don't know how to pronounce this name, but they're saying Ihor Poteria. We were saying Poteria at some point. This is the thing that keeps happening, where a guy will just show up with a new name pronunciation, and we're all expected to act like we didn't already get in the the habit of doing it the other way. Yeah, I uh, I don't know, but this I'm going to try to say it in something approaching. The correct, the correct fashion from here on out. Ihor Poteria, I think, is what we're saying. Uh, well, it seems like Ihor Poteria has been cursed by the MMA gods for what he did to Shogun, and I say good for him. Since his win over Hua, he is 0-2 and 1-3 overall. All of his losses are KOs. Did you happen to catch the back-and-forth war between him and Rodolfo Bellato this past weekend? This been on a... Uh, on a card full of stoppages where the UFC ends up giving out 10 post-fight bonuses, which, again, just a reminder, they could do that whenever they want. They could. There's no, there's no policy. There's no rules guiding this shit. It's the whims of one rich, bald man. And if he wants to give out 10 post-fight bonuses after a random-ass fight night in Texas in the middle of December, he will and can and never forget that. On that card, though, as I said, where you get 10 post-fight bonuses, this is the fight of the night. The light heavyweight uh, preliminary fight here between Bellato and Poteri, Poteria, whatever. Uh, did you watch this one? This was a good one. This this deserves fight of the night honors because this is one where uh, they're throwing that leather. They're doing all this stuff. Poteria gets, uh, gets Bellato down in the first round. Looks like he's going to finish him, but no, no. Then they come back out reversal of fortunes and it is uh it's the other guy getting the second round tko so this one they they lived a whole lot of lives many lives were lived by both guys in this fight reversal of fortunes is one of the classic ways to get yourself a fight of the night bonus (laughs) you know like that's reversal of fortunes is a good sort of fight plot line to set yourself up for that bonus the other one is to have some moment late in the fight when both guys are bleeding and like telling each other to meet each other in the center of the cage and just standing there head down winging punches at each other that kind of stuff until you get one of those final scenes where the the horn goes and then they hug each other and everybody's blood is all over the place that's another way yeah to get yourself fight of the night so just so i understand the question though the the thesis is that uh when Etor, I mean, we, I guess I assume we're talking about when, as the duelist, mm-hmm. Ehor Potiera, Potieria, when he went out there and he knocked out Shogun and then he did his duelist celebration. Is that what we're talking about? Like, is he it the celebration? Yeah. And then remember, I think later he tried to say it was a shy, sign of respect or like he does it after all of his fights. Well, the sign of respect, because it was like he does a thing where he points the gun at the downed fighter, but that... 
when he did it to Shogun, he pulled it back as if like, I'm not going to fire the gun. And it was just, but it was at the time people were just like, Hey bro, that's Shogun. Yeah. Like be cool about it. And when, when our question asker here, um, the chili cheese chimpanzee, the chili cheese champ chimpanzee says he's been cursed by the MMA gods for what he did for to Shogun. And I say, good for him saying you kind of say good for the MMA gods for cursing him. Rightly so is what you're saying. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's good for him exactly. No, no it does not. We talked about it this at the time, but for him to point the gun at Shogun, but then point it up in the air and not fire it at Shogun asks for us, the audience, to pay considerable attention to what you are doing with your post-fight celebration. Like, it's not the wire. You know what I mean? We don't have to bring the kind of attention to detail that we do to an HBO prestige drama to the thing that you're doing with your fingers in the cage after you win. That's asking for us to to do a lot of processing when you're pointing a finger gun at Shogun Hua and then but not firing it. Yeah. That's, well, and how would we know when you fire the finger gun? See, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know. So... We have to be like watching to make sure that the thumb hammer goes down to make sure that you fire. Because it's like, it is not an actual gun. I don't, <laughs> there's no noise. Like, I don't know what, how we're supposed to know when you, when you hold your fire on the finger gun. Yeah. Uh, and all, Ihor Poteria also asks for us to even be familiar with what his post fight celebration is when. You know, that was only his second fight in the UFC after a couple of fights or after one fight on the contender series. So I don't know. Maybe he just has an outsized opinion of his uh, his post-fight celebration. He thought everybody that, knew. That could be. Whether or not he's been cursed by the MMA gods, I can't say. But uh, that's where he was at. All right, last question this week comes to us from Hazel Monson. It is a non-MMA question, but it harkens back to an old uh, feature that we used to do on this show. The subject line says, literary tips for the well-rounded fight fan. They write, the year is coming to a close, and I would like to ask, best fiction you have read this year, long form, short form. I would like to shout out some things that I have personally enjoyed. Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield. Tell Me I'm Worthless by Allison Rumfit. And A Dream of a Woman by Casey Plett. What do you think, Ben? What can you add to the list? Well, I mentioned this, I think, uh, when we were talking about maybe on the live chat or one of the other Patreon properties that I read the new novel by the big homie Patrick DeWitt, uh, writer of the Sisters Brothers and French Exit and other joints that we have enjoyed and discussed in the past. Uh, he has a new one called The Librarianist, which when I just started it, figured out what the subject matter and who the characters were going to be and what kind of a story we were telling. I thought this seems boring and like, I won't be into it. And I ended up absolutely loving it. It's really unusual in terms of its structure and how it goes about just like building out of novel. But by the end, I was sad that there wasn't more of it to read. It was really yeah. excellent. And I highly recommend it. <sighs> I really liked Titanium Noir, which I've recommended oh, yeah. on this show before or on Behind the Paywall, I guess yeah. it was. I read uh, it on your recommendation, in fact. Yeah, it's pretty fun, right? Uh, by Nick Harkaway, who I, I believe low-key is the son of Jean Le Carre, 
the famous uh, spy novelist. Yeah. And so that that's a pretty good one. Kind of like a, uh, not post-apocalyptic, but like future, uh, kind of like speculative fiction slash detective novel, which... Uh, which I think is a, a very niche but entertaining uh, genre to get into. So that that was a good one. I Like I said, also, I, I got into a bunch of Elmore Leonard Westerns in the middle of the year, especially after going on Patrick Wyman's show where we talked about uh, Westerns on the art of dadliness, the pursuit of dadliness, I believe it's called. And uh, enjoyed those two. They're pretty short, so you can... Um, just shoot through a bunch of them all at once. Some of them, I would say, a little bit of a product of their times. But at the same time, you know, many of them are quite enjoyable. So if you want to do that, they're out there. Also, you're never going to run out of them. Yeah. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, Ben, as these fight nights go, I feel like this one actually left us with a fair amount to talk about here. Uh, We talked about on the Patreon page last week about Bobby Green and Armand Sarukian's crew getting into a skirmish at the UFC host hotel, one that uh, made the most amount of news heading into the fight, I guess. I guess when you're, uh, if you're an MMA journalist, and you're covering these fight nights that are just kind of cookie-cutter events that they churn out weekend after weekend, despite the fact that this one had a pretty decent card. If you're covering these things, man, you got to love a hotel skirmish Yeah, the week of the fight because at least that gives you something to write about, to ask about, etc., etc. In any case, they have this skirmish. Bobby Green refused, appears to find it very amusing. Then they both went out and they fought not against each other, but in the co-main event and main event, respectively, of this ESPN on UFC event, Armand Sarukian wins. He has a nice performance. He knocks out Benil Dariush with sort of a knee uh, straight punch right dead on the jaw combo. Ends up knocking Dariush out cold with some strikes on the ground. So he wins a very important fight for him in the main event. On the flip side, Bobby Green, not so lucky. Jalen Turner came in on short notice, uh, pretty much laid him out in just under three minutes in a way that we don't, that I feel like we don't oftentimes see Bobby green get played. Like, you know what I mean? So big win for Jalen Turner, big win for Armand Sarukian. I don't know where you want to start on this one because it feels like uncharacteristically, we have a lot of ground to cover as it pertains to this fight night. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking that when you were talking about in the intro, how 
Armand Sarukian went out there and got it done in just over a minute. The Jalen Turner's win took just slightly longer, about you know two and a half minutes. But in Jalen Turner's defense, the referee did force him to knock Bobby Green out a couple of times before That's he true. consented to step in there and stop. Without that late stoppage, maybe we would have been like 15 seconds earlier. Yeah, that was a bad one. I feel like that's the kind that, for you know, to the credit of most MMA referees, we have not seen that much of lately. That we've gotten a little better at knowing when to jump in there. That was one where it seems like the dude's out, maybe gets brought back around a little bit by being hit again, and then we're just going to wait until he goes back out again, all while he's not really showing any signs of being in the fight of intelligently defending himself or fighting back or even being able to move and improve position, just kind of getting rained on there. Um, that So that's kind of a scary one. Whenever there's a time, like when there is an opportunity for one of the commentators to say repeatedly that the fight should be stopped, mm-hmm. that's a bad sign. Yeah. This UFC broadcast team incensed also by that late stoppage and then sort of setting the tone for how this whole thing was, was going to be received. But I agree that was a late stoppage. Sometimes we have a tendency to have short memories in this sport. And whenever something happens like this, again, like a pre-fight hotel skirmish, a late stoppage is something that we all secretly love in this sport, because then we get to talk about that for another 48 hours or whatever. We have a tendency whenever we see one of these things to basically be like, that was the worst one of all time. Yeah, But I agree that this one was a little bit egregious, fairly bad stoppage, and a late one for Bobby Green. Uh, big win for Jalen Turner, obviously, who needed it. Let's let's talk a little bit about Armand Sarukian here, because this was a big fight for both him and Benil Dariush. Sarukian has been relatively spotless in his UFC career thus far. He lost to Islam Mahachev, who, of course, is the champion in his UFC debut back in April of 2019. Other than that, he has he has pretty much uh, made a run through the division with the one exception of the decision loss to Mateusz Gamrat at uh, a UFC on ESPN show last year in June, where he lost a unanimous decision. But as we always say, did he though? Did he though? Did he really lose did that one? Though? Without that decision, man, he would be on a real roll in the UFC and even so has put together three wins in a row after that decision, which a lot of people thought could have gone his way. This is one of those ones, man, when you starch Benil Dariush in a minute, I feel like this is an impressive performance and one of those ones that makes everybody ask, how high can this guy fly? Yeah, it made me wonder if he had just had this one really scouted well because it seemed like he had this combination sort of locked and loaded where... Okay, we're going to throw the overhand sort of thing, betting that Bill Dario will cover up and put his head down a little bit, which he does. And he goes straight into that knee as if he was just, he was throwing the punch to get him to do that defensively so that it would open up the, the knee up the middle. And it worked perfectly and put him down and then just jumped right on him and put him out. And it's a good reminder, honestly, about how, I don't want to say fickle, but how difficult it can be to be climbing the ranks in one of these tough divisions and to really stay there. Because Benil Dariush has that great win streak, you know, where he won, what, seven fights in a row, eight fights in a row at lightweight, already tough as hell to do. We're, we're talking about 
what else he's going to have to do to get a title shot. They put him in there with Chucky Olives. It seems like, okay, this is the one. If you, All you have to do is go out there and beat a guy who was very recently the champ, and you'll get a shot at the title. And he gets kind of run over in that one. You're trying to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, get back in there and get back in the wind column, and they give you Armand Sarukian, who is not an easy out for anybody. Um, and you go out there and you lose that one too. And it's like, okay, you started the year on this great winning streak, seeming like the sky's the limit. You end the year two fights later on a two-fight losing streak going, shit, what now? It took so long to get up there. How, how the hell are you supposed to get back? Um, and it's not like, like, you don't have to suck to lose to either of those guys yeah. on any given night, you know? Yeah, yeah it's going to make it tough, I think, for Benil Dariush. Uh, I also... And, it, you know, as you said, he was a guy who had to basically fight his way into even being considered for the opportunity. Seemed like a guy that the UFC was just going to make keep winning fights until he either lost one or they couldn't deny him any longer. I guess as it pertains to Saruki, and this is the conversation we have to have about this division pretty much any time that one of these guys starts winning fights. But you can make the case at this point that he is actually undefeated or that he hasn't lost a fight since that loss to Islam Bahachev in his UFC career. Now, in the post-fight interview with Daniel Cormier after this one is over, he points out, hey, man, I was 22 years old or 24 years old. I can't remember what he said when I lost to Mahachev in my UFC debut. Several years have passed since then. I'm 28 now. I'm a different fighter. It would be a different fight. I would knock him out. But at the same time, the discussion that we always have, you've got the Justin Gaethje's, the Dustin Poirier's, the Michael Chandler's, the Conor McGregor's of the world clogging up the top of this division. And it seems to take a lot for a young guy to to break into that crowd of elite fighters who are in and around the, the title. Is this enough for Armand Sarukian or, or does he have to do more, especially considering that loss to Islam Mahachev in 2019? Yeah, I mean, so far it seems like the, the kind of wins that he's got are not the kind that instantly vault you into title contention in a, in a division this deep. Plus, as we've talked about before, lightweight, like some of the other divisions, it kind of seems like there's two divisions. You got the guys who are famous one way or another, or at least MMA famous, who at any given moment could kind of just get a call saying, all right, it's you, you're up next, let's go. And then you got the other guys who are trying to make it to that level by just winning a whole bunch of fights. And it's like the only way to do it is to win a whole bunch of fights or to get one of those famous guys to agree to sort of fight down the rankings and take you on. And the closest really that he's come is getting Benil Dariush, who was himself close to that level. But then, you know, you are getting Bill Dariush off a loss. His stock has dimmed a little bit. You got to find some way to sort of bridge that gap between the two divisions of the guys who are just fighting a whole bunch and the guys who are capital G guys, known guys, uh, who are all sort of waiting around going, I would like a title shot. And in failing that, I would like Conor McGregor. Like right. that's what kind of everybody is doing <laughs> yeah. uh, who is up there in like the top three or four. And you're trying to get in there. Like none of those guys is being like, okay, but I would also consider a reasonable substitute, a fight with Armand Sarukian. No, because yeah. it would be a tough as hell fight. 
and he doesn't necessarily give you a ton of like name recognition boost. Yeah, Michael Chandler isn't sitting here with an index card that has Conor McGregor at the top of it and Armand Sarukian just next. That's yeah. not happening. Uh, so yeah, a little maybe a little bit of a tough spot for him. You'd think he would be in the top five after this win since Benil Dariush was number four, kind of made it look easy against Dariush. I would think he would fly up from the number eight spot, but we'll have to wait and see how the UFC handles all that stuff. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, speaking of Michael Chandler, I received one of those PR emails that you get sometimes as when you're just you're been put on somebody's list as a, some journalist covering something or other. Sometimes they have absolutely nothing to do with what you actually talk and write about. Other times they're a little bit closer, but you do wonder what they think you're going to do with this information. And that's kind of how I felt about this email I got about Michael Chandler partnering with Hiatus Tequila, which I did not know what that was, but I got this email about it. Uh, I guess I'm going to give them what they want by even talking about it here. But it notes that when Michael Chandler met Christopher DeSoto, founder of Hiatus Tequila, he saw someone who mirrored his core values of hard work, dedication, and integrity. Now, Chad, then this is followed by a quote attributed to Michael Chandler. My love for tequila runs deep, which I'm going to stop right there. (laughs) Does it, though? Does it? Because everything we know about Michael Chandler, there's (laughs) nothing about him says, this guy loves tequila. Yeah. You know, it just maybe he does. Maybe his love for tequila really does run deep. But I don't know if I believe you on that. Anyway, it continues. I've always enjoyed spending free time with friends and family while sipping tequila. No. (laughs) (coughs) No, no, Mike. I'm sorry, but no, I don't believe that that's something that Michael Chandler is just like, I like a good just hanging around with friends and family with a glass of tequila to sip on uh, while I'm sitting around on the back porch barbecuing. I just, I cannot picture that in my mind's eye. It goes on. I wanted to create my own brand, which here I'll pause to say Michael Chandler tequila. He thought that was like, you're telling me that there was a world. Michael Chandler was like, well, the obvious next move for me is to go into tequila. Like (laughs) Conor McGregor does whiskey, you know, Jorge Masvidal had, uh, what was it? What was his drink? Uh, Mezcal, uh, you know, Aljamain Sterling is going to do rum. Michael Chandler tequila. People think Michael Chandler, they think Mm -hmm. tequila. Yeah. Hard to separate the two in your mind. But once I discovered hiatus and learned about their commitment to quality, purity, and authenticity, which is what drew me to tequila in the first place, I'll tell you what draws people to tequila, Mike. <laughs> a desire to get fucked up. That's what draws people to tequila. Nobody is like, I, you know, I think that I am going to drink some tequila tonight because of my commitment to quality, purity, and authenticity. Nope. That's not how it happens. He says, partnering with them was a no-brainer for me. Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is this, is hiatus, first of all, hiatus tequila? Yeah, that's a terrible name for a tequila company. When I was 18, I drank too much tequila and I had to take a hiatus myself. 
You know what My I mean? My hiatus continues to this day. <laughs> That's right. I've hiatus since since then. I've never gone back to tequila. Still on a hiatus from that particular alcohol. It's already a strange name. And then for Michael Chandler to tell me that what he loves to do is sit around sipping on tequila. Are you fucking kidding me? I do not believe <laughs> any of this. Oh, you fucking kidding me. Uh, less funny, Ben, but former UFC light heavyweight champion Jamal Hill arrested over the weekend, charged with domestic violence, aggravated domestic violence for what seems to be, according to TMZ, a physical altercation with his brother, James Anthony Hill. Uh, what what's is there? Is it so, is the light heavyweight title? Is it just is there something wrong with it? If you win the light heavyweight title, are you then like you go out and commit a crime? You get arrested for something because uh, not only with John Jones, but we have a little bit of a of a troubled history here with the light heavyweight title. Now you got Jamal Hill. He's out there rehabbing the uh, Achilles tendon injury and apparently allegedly getting into some manner of scrap with his brother. Don't know Jamal Hill's brother. Don't know if he's kind of the kind of guy that Jamal Hill could legitimately get into a scrap with. But are you fucking kidding me, man? We got to stop this. We're having enough time, hard time holding the light heavyweight division together as it is. People need to stop committing crimes up at the, the light heavyweight title picture. You fucking kidding Allegedly. me? Allegedly. Allegedly. Um, I'm going to say, are you fucking kidding me that we're really calling that domestic violence? Because you know what people are going to think when they yeah. hear Jamal yes. Hill arrested for domestic violence. But it is a different thing to be like beating up a, a woman or intimate family partner or something than to get into a scrap with your brother. That's just called Thanksgiving where a lot of people are from. Like you you told me, you know, you beat up your wife or your girlfriend or something. And I go, well, that's a really shitty thing to do. You tell me you beat up your brother. I, I want to know maybe did he have it coming? Because it's possible. <laughs> Uh-huh. I, I've, I've seen how brothers can interact, even well into adulthood. Is I, I would need to know more about There should be a separate term for beating up your brother. It yeah. shouldn't be called domestic violence. Okay, well, fair point. I would. I don't know if this will make you feel any differently about it, but Bloody Elbow does remember uh, or does remind us of the time when Dana White was caught on camera slapping his wife in the face in public at a nightclub in Mexico. At which time... The time was less than a year ago, so it's not like ancient history, yeah. At which time Jamal Hill tweeted, she should have acted like a real woman with respect in class. So, I I appreciate your spirited defense of him, but I'm still going to say, are you fucking kidding me getting arrested for scrapping with your brother when you're supposed to be one of the many UFC light heavyweight champions at the moment? All right, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, I would like to begin round two by, I'll say, paraphrasing, slightly altering a quote for a quote from the big homie Cormac McCarthy that I feel is relevant here. Here, I'm just going to make a couple key substitutions when I write. Bare knuckle was always here, 
Before Mike Perry was, Bare Knuckle waited for him. The ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. Hmm. That's deep. Mike Perry seems like he has fit into BKFC, as Scottie Pippen said about Dennis Rodman, like a hand in a glove. <laughs> just an absolutely perfect fit, kind of just like stylistically, culturally, everything that BKFC needs and wants out of a fighter. Mike Perry just fucking is. Mm-hmm. I want to point out this question here that uh, we got from Scott, who writes, How fun is it that Mike Perry has turned into the undefeated king of violence in BKFC? He really found his calling. He did. He goes yeah. out there in this Eddie Alvarez fight. And I don't know if you watched this one. I watched it after the fact. The first round of it, Mike Perry's kind of getting jacked up. And you can see Eddie Alvarez landing some of these shots and sort of kind of then looking at him afterwards like, really? That one didn't bother you? <laughs> like, it seemed like I cracked you pretty good there. He's landing that left hook, landing those jabs over and over again. Mike Perry got stumbled a little bit, just getting his head rocked all over the place and still just keep coming forward. And you can see Eddie Alvarez starting to slow down toward the end of the round just because he's thrown so many goddamn punches and clocked this guy in his face so many times. Mike Perry, though, uh, it seems like he keeps getting into these kind of bare-knuckle fights with other people who are coming a little bit newer into bare-knuckle and they're not realizing that this guy was just made for a bare knuckle fight he's gonna get fucked up you're gonna get fucked up but he bets that you will mind it more than he will yeah and this one you know eddie alvarez wins the first round pretty cleanly but then it's his orbital broken can't see shit his corner as seems to actually care about their fighter and is just like no bro we're not going to send you out there when you can't see and they stop it uh and mike perry just continues to rule over bkfc what the hell? Two great tastes that taste great together. Mike Perry and Bare Knuckle Fighting. It is harder for me, or as hard, I should say, to uncouple the idea of Mike Perry and Bare Knuckle Fighting as it is for me to separate Michael Chandler and Tequila. They are they are all <laughs> so inexorably linked in my mind that I can't I can't have one without the other. Who needs each other more here? Does Mike Perry need BKFC or does BKFC need Mike Perry? Because we still don't know if bare knuckle fighting is sort of a flash in the pan as, you know, as a, uh, an alternative to MMA or an alternative to boxing or a bankable thing in combat sports yet. But it seems like Mike Perry, if, if nothing else could buy you some time because Mike Perry brings that preloaded notoriety from MMA Everyone is right. It does seem like to, if you will excuse the cliche, he is built for this shit. He came out prior to the fight during the stare down and told Eddie Alvarez he didn't think he was really about that life. He said to Eddie Alvarez, you think this is a game and I'm here for real. And after it was over, you know, no disrespect to Eddie Alvarez, who broke his goddamn orbital and should have been out of the fight at that point. Corner made the right decision. But you see the 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 stoppage after the second round and you kind of think, Maybe Mike Perry was right. Maybe Mike Perry is more about this life than any of these other other MMA fighters who come out and try to turn to to bare knuckle FC. So it is a perfect fit. It is something that couldn't have been predicted. And my God, I can't believe that we're sitting here talking about 
like basically the third act of Mike Perry's combat sports career as being the poster boy for bare knuckle boxing. It's unbelievable. Yeah, but it also makes me want. I mean, first of all, we should note before we get too off that Michael Perry, Mike Perry, did sit around here afterwards with the King of Violence belt over his shoulder, his face all swollen up to like three times its normal size, talking about how men need to be men again, stop being liberals, and send women back to the kitchen. So he's still going to be Mike Perry. Yeah, uh, yeah. Any any time, you know, you'd be better off just watching Mike Perry fight and never hearing a word from him on any subject also been credibly accused of domestic violence. So there's that. But I wonder if other fighters in the UFC and stuff, we talk about how do they look around and go, wait a minute, I'm in the UFC fighting for 20 and 20 or whatever, getting my outfitting pay, hoping to climb the ranks slowly, you know, one year at a time. While a guy I beat on the prelims four years ago, just won a million dollars in PFL. Yeah. I wonder if some of them, or at least have the initial thought when they look at Mike Perry having this kind of success and being the poster boy over in BKFC before some more rational part of their brain goes, but then I would have to do bare knuckle boxing and everybody, it seems gets fucked up in bare knuckle boxing, whether you win or you lose. If the fight goes more than 15 seconds, nobody's walking out of there looking the same as when they walked in, in those bare knuckle boxing matches. Yeah. Yeah, I think probably you think more about Impa Kasangane and uh, OAM going over there, especially uh, winning two PFL tournaments in uh, OAM, getting the uh, that two mil. You probably think about that more than, oh, man, I could be the next Mike Perry over yeah. there in Bare Knuckle FC. He comes out, obviously, going to call out Conor McGregor because that's what you do when you win a fight in the year of our Lord 2023. You're going to call out Conor McGregor. Uh, he wants, says he wants to fight Anthony Pettis in a bare-knuckle boxing match. Said that he wants to fight Jorge Masvidal in a boxing match or a bare-knuckle boxing match. I believe he referred to that as a super fight, bare-knuckle super fight, which would maybe be the first time we had seen one of those. Uh, there, I guess there are some options, but at the same time, if you're BKFC, we know what the formula has been. How many times can you keep running it back with Mike Perry where you can go out there throw the net in the water, troll out a couple of former UFC fighters that are willing to come in here and fight bare knuckle, because that's honestly who you need to fight Mike Perry, right? Like you can't, you don't want to put Mike Perry out there with some no name bare knuckle fighter and run the risk of something bad happening to him. You got to keep the cash cow moving with these former MMA fighters we've heard of before. And it's, it's another thing that makes me wonder how long can you play out the string? Yeah. Um, I do want to note this. We also got this listener mail here uh, from Cody Wilson, who writes, Me to BKFC, longtime giffer, first-time streamer. Uh, it goes on to write, Really impressed by your unique and dramatic camera work in the aftermath of the King of Violence main event this evening. I specifically appreciated the slow-mo replay of the Alvarez corner waving off the fight. I also enjoyed the close-up audio-on exchange between Eddie Alvarez and his longtime partner where he appeared to request they not banter with someone inside the ring. A tender look into one of MMA's most iconic relationships. The unique chemistry of a BKFC event produced a very relatable moment where a child was visibly overwhelmed by the drama of the freshly crowned king of violence, Mike Platinum Perry's post-fight vibe. 
Somehow, I am at a place where bare-knuckle boxing, at least in small doses, hits me with that dopamine that early aughts-era UFC gave me in pre-apocalyptic, naive, and simpler times. It was a wild night of MMA, but are y'all going to discuss much about this kind of awesome match between a couple medium old dogs? Discuss. Now, we've heard this from people before where it's like, what BKFC is selling you is not just the, we're going to have ourselves a good, clean, bare-knuckle boxing match in here, but a certain kind of car crash appeal yeah. of the, the human carnage and also that it feels like a sport that has not yet fully taken shape, not solidified into whatever it will become, the way MMA now pretty clearly has. Like the UFC kind of going to give you... Uh, a similar thing each night, a thing, a thing that you kind of know what to expect of, and BKFC still feels just like wild and crazy and bloody in a different sort of way. Yeah, yeah, and we, you know, I've, we've said this before, but when you and I went up to Great Falls to watch a bare knuckle boxing event live, BKFC event live, uh, I was struck with kind of how I don't know if I want to say not fun, but like just kind of like how the lack of entertainment maybe in bare knuckle boxing because we had watched this you know two people would have an exchange and you wouldn't really be able to tell what happened because they're out here just furiously throwing fists and then they back up and one person is cut above the eyebrow and you think to yourself oh i guess somebody did land some punches in that exchange that was hard for me to follow and you know m many of the fights end rather shortly you know they don't go on that long and so I, the the actual entertainment value of it, I think, is is questionable. But I guess I understand at this point how if you were a combat sports fan, especially an old school combat sports fan, if you might look at the current product that the UFC continues to churn out and just kind of think this does not give me any more the thing that it provided for me during my formative years as a fan. And you might have to go out and seek out different avenues, different options for what to watch and maybe BKFC is one of those, especially when they're going to be bringing up the familiar names that you recognize. Guys like Mike Perry, guys like Eddie Alvarez, Chad Mendez has been over there. Ben Rothwell making his way was supposed to fight Todd Duffy on this card. So, you know, BKFC knows what they're doing. It's a they got some shrewd stuff happening over there, if, if nothing else. Uh, so I understand if it appeals to some people. I, I watched this. Mike Perry, Eddie Alvarez fight and was entertained by that. I'm just not sure it's the kind of thing that I would tune in to watch religiously. Uh, and I think BKFC knows that and that's why they're doing this stuff. But, you know, I guess I, on one hand, I understand it. On the other hand, I will just keep continue to repeat that. I don't necessarily think it's that cool. I guess what I just worry about is um, as much as you, BKFC keeps finding these ways to pull us in for one more night, one more night, when we keep thinking like, okay, my curiosity has been satisfied. And then they'll just put together a good matchup, good something where you go like, okay, fine. At this point, I feel like I've seen a fair amount of BKFC fights. I've been to two different BKFC events. I have never given BKFC a single cent of my money. How do you turn this, this type of attention into money? Now, I realize... Some of the, you know, I got media passes to two different events, but also like when I find a BKFC event or I see one, I usually see it because somebody will post like the full fight video on Twitter or, or Instagram or something. I've never paid for a pay-per-view. Do, yeah. do you think they can get people to actually give them their monies in exchange for some of this stuff? 
Well, doesn't it? Cody says they got his money this time around, right? Didn't he? Well, he said he streamed it. He okay, streamed it. I guess that's it. that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. That's probably a valid concern. It does seem like BKFC has money, although they would certainly not be the first combat sports organization, MMA adjacent combat sports organization that seemed to have money until the day that you showed up to the office and there were chains around the door handles. Uh, so who knows? Who knows where it'll go? But yeah, I do think that that's an obstacle. And I don't know, still not convinced that five, 10 years from now, we'll be sitting around talking about BKFC. Yeah. We'll see. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, everybody knows that the reason we basically have these post-fight press conferences at these fight night events is so MMA media guys can show up and ask Dana White questions on every topic they need to write a story about, and then they can just churn those out for the rest of the week. So I do want to talk about Dana White's quote, uh, quotes, his reaction to the PFL Bellator merger. But in order to do that, I feel we need to back up a step because you had your man, Don Davis. The PFL's Don Davis go on the MMA hour last week with Ariel Helwani. I'm looking at Alexander K. Lee's transcription over on MMA fighting. And he has some things to say about the UFC and Dana White. He says, everybody knows Dana well enough that he only dismisses things that worry him or else he just doesn't comment. He didn't comment on the PFL for four years because he wasn't worried. He commented on the PFL a lot the last six months. You're worried. He goes on to say that this this uh, partnership or consolidation with Bellator will eventually make the PFL, quote, a co-leader in MMA with the UFC, I guess. So before I even talk about Dana White's response, I will just ask you, is that shrewd by Don Davis to come out here and say some shit? that you know Dana White is going to respond to. There's no way Dana White doesn't have the rabbit ears for someone talking about what Dana White will and won't do just so he can come out in front of the media and respond. You know he's going to respond. Yeah, you know he is. And I guess, do you see it as a sign that at least Don Davis thinks, okay, we're at a level now where it would benefit us to get into this sort of back and forth. It would benefit us to have Dana White saying anything about the PFL. Uh, Whereas before we were still climbing up and it was a little better to stay under the radar. But I mean, maybe you just get to a point where when you're acquiring a competitor, uh, also the PFL just uh, renewed its rights agreement with ESPN, which as we've talked about is absolutely huge for PFL just to, to be on that platform that fight fans already have for the most part and to create no extra barrier to us seeing you, that is way more than half the battle for any organization not named the UFC. It's kind of what doomed Bellator, being moved yeah. around over and over again and then finally winding up somewhere where we didn't already have it and there was a barrier to us going and getting it. And having that deal, it also suggests that ESPN itself might be sort of hedging on where 
the future of its rights deal with the UFC is going to go. If you come up for a renewal, they want a whole lot more money. They have other suitors. Do you kind of go, well, we could let them go and we still have PFL. We still have a foot in the MMA game. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you figure at that point, you've already signaled your intention to try to be a big time competitor. You might as well start talking like a big time competitor. Yeah, you're going to have to at some point, right? Because people are just going to ask you about it, especially with, as you said, you and the UFC both being on ESPN, the close proximity, the fact that you just acquired Bellator, which whether or not it is true, I think the perception is that that makes you a bit of a player on the MMA scene. And so it's not like you can't, you don't want to no comment. If you're Don Davis, you want to talk about as much stuff as you can talk about. And I do think when you address Dana White, you address him in a way that you know he's going to respond to and that is a bit of a P.T. Barnum pursuit in terms of all press being good press. But as long as you can get Dana White to talk about your shit, I think that uh, maybe it puts your shit over a little bit and, and gets you a little bit of attention that you wouldn't otherwise get. Now, I do want to get to these Dana White quotes also, because obviously, as I said, he was asked about this. The co-leader comments from Don Davis. This is at the post-fight press conference in Austin over the weekend. Dana White says, it's fucking hilarious. Good for them. I wish them all the luck in the world. He goes on to say, I've covered this before. One shitty organization that sells no tickets and nobody watches buys another shitty organization that sells no tickets and nobody watches. Sounds like a fucking winner. And then he goes, Ric Flair, woo, at the end of the quote. Uh, And that's what you'd expect, I guess you would say for Dana White. And I don't even necessarily know if he is wrong in terms of shrugging off the idea that the PFL would be a, quote, co-leader with the UFC. We have talked at length about the fact that, like it or not, the UFC is relatively comfortably ensconced as the top MMA promotion in the world, and that at this point, it feels like it would be hard to knock them off that pedestal, just considering everything they've got going for them in terms of not only brand awareness, but just, like, power in the market and every, every other thing. And we know that, like, it's possible now the UFC is so secure in that notion that they're not even worrying about it, that it, that they don't even actually really care as long as uh, the UFC continues to churn out money for Endeavor and everything else. Uh, but should they be? Should they be looking over their shoulder even just a little bit for the PFL at this point? I don't think the UFC is looking over its shoulder at any other MMA organization. And I can understand why. Just the the hold that they have on this industry. The thing that they might ought to be looking over their shoulder at is this antitrust case. (laughs) Yeah. Because it is not a great look to be out here at a time when you have been accused of creating an anti-competitive market and making it so that no one can compete with you. Just be out here saying no one can compete with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I saw something, I saw Luke Thomas post something about uh, troubles with the law firm that the UFC has hired to uh, handle the antitrust case for it. And if you were one of those lawyers and you hear like the president of the organization continues to go out here and say stuff like this, you'd be like, could we get him to stop doing that? Because <laughs> it's not exactly helping. Like it's yeah. not making anything easier when you have to go in there and make this case that no, this is the UFC is just one of the many competitors <laughs> in this environment. Uh, I mean, you already have a whole lot of these like internal communications that show the UFC sort of trying to create that environment. And then Dana White's going to brag about creating that environment. And it's just like that, that feels like 
if you were somebody on the other side, wouldn't you be like, let's just keep poking that bear and keep getting him to say this stuff? Uh, because in a lot of ways, stuff Dana White has said either privately or publicly, or him out there posing with the the tombstones of all the other organizations, that kind of feels like maybe the best and easiest help you can generate for your case. Yeah, no, I agree. They usually uh, they usually don't let him go near that kind of stuff. They usually, you know, they'd rather keep Dana White away from the from the cameras around that. And maybe this is why. Maybe because he will say some stuff about uh, how you are the industry leader with no peer. And, yeah. uh, you know, maybe that's not what you want. All right, let's do just saying stuff, and then we will we'll get out of here for this week. Now, Ben, to begin my just saying stuff, I would like to read from you the plot summary of a movie called The Secret Dare to Dream. Okay. The Wikipedia plot summary. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I will just read you the first few paragraphs so that you can get a taste. So that you can get a taste of what's happening here. Okay. The Secret Dare to Dream. Miranda Wells is a hardworking young widow struggling to raise three children while managing her boyfriend Tucker's seafood restaurant in New Orleans. Bray Johnson is an engineering professor from Vanderbilt University looking to meet Miranda to deliver an envelope. After Bray misses Miranda on his first try going to her house, they inadvertently meet when she rear-ends his truck with her car. He offers to fix Miranda's broken bumper, so he follows her to her home and invites him to stay for dinner. Until they drive back, he doesn't even realize it's the same Miranda he came looking for. Bray and Miranda's son, Greg, fix the car bumper together. Miranda's kids, Bess, Greg, and Missy want pizza for dinner, which Miranda cannot afford. Bray stresses the power of positive thinking. Just as a delivery person appears at the door with a pizza. As Bray has never found the moment to give the envelope to Miranda before departing, he leaves it in the mailbox. And then... Just the first sentence of the next page of the next of the next paragraph, a hurricane hits that night, washing away the mailbox <laughs> and causing a tree to fall through the roof. What's your response? What's your reaction? My reaction is, yeah. why is this happening? Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> this is a film starring Katie Holmes, Josh Lucas and Jerry O'Connell. Okay. I got to shout out our guy, uh, Mike, over on Patreon, who pulled my coat to the existence of this movie. He says his, his own girlfriend tricked him into watching it and that he watched this movie. And at the end, the first credit that comes up on the screen after the end of the secret dare to dream, which by all accounts is an absolute fucking stinking hunk of junk as a movie. The very first thing that comes up on the screen for the credits, executive producers, Lorenzo J Fertitta. And Frank J. Fertitta III. Just in case you were wondering what the Fertittas are up to these days, it's bankrolling films like The Secret, Dare to Dream, which went straight to video, straight to streaming. So when they cashed out and created their whatever, their investment firm, investment fund, this is what they're doing with them? This is what they're investing in? Funding Katie Holmes movies based on the secret. Wow. That's what they're doing. So this week, I'm just saying, 
I'm with our guy, Michael, when he asks, do the Fertitta brothers even know what atrocities they continue to fund? Just saying. Just, just saying. saying. Well, Chad, for my just saying this week, I will also be reading you something. This is a tweet from Darren Till. Uh, this is December 3rd at 8.01 a.m. I've talked a lot of shit on this platform for years and done a load of trolling as well. He also he writes as well as one word. This is not the way. I've decided to spread nothing but positivity and good vibes from on here from now. This, for, or on good vibes on here from now on. This is the way. Have a good Sunday, everyone. Prayer hands emoji. Smiley face emoji. Now, you'll recall oh, what no. time that was? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. No, 8.01 a.m., right? 8.01 a.m. 8.02 a.m., a user at SandwichBurger1 replies, So one last time, any negative comments on Bilal? Meaning Bilal Muhammad. 8.04 a.m., Darren Till replies, I hate his fucking guts. Okay. I'm just saying, it's hard to keep from being yourself. You know, it's just, you can you can tell yourself you've turned over a new leaf. You can tell yourself you're spreading that positivity. Somebody comes along. I mean, basically, it's like Darren Till said that he was giving up cigarettes and somebody walked up with a case of Marlboros <laughs> and was like, but don't these seem like they'd be nice right about now? Like that, they did not exactly set him up for success right away. A quick glance through his recent activity on Twitter, which is voluminous, mm-hmm. suggests that Darren Till has struggled to maintain <laughs> his positive vibes. Wow. Well, I'm surprised. I'm shocked to hear that. I'm shocked yeah. with that. So I guess I'm just saying maybe don't make a commitment to those positive vibes so publicly unless you really feel like you're ready to stand by it. Yeah. Hmm. Just saying. Just saying. All right. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. As a reminder, hit us up, patreon.com slash event. We're over there all week churning out the content. If not, we'll see you a week from today for another episode of The Proper. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. A hurricane hits, washing away the mailbox and causing a tree to follow fall through okay, the roof. When you say a hurricane hits, because the way it sounds in the, at least the plot description was that everybody was just going about their business and then a hurricane out of fucking nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is not typically how hurricanes go. Generally, you can see them coming. They develop out in the ocean, and like you get a little bit of an advanced warning that a hurricane might be headed your way. It's not like you're getting pizzas delivered, all this shit, and then a hurricane, boom, takes out your mailbox. Yeah, yeah. Bray comes back to check on them, sees the mailbox is missing, and offers to fix the roof as best he can. Miranda and the kids leave with the kid's grandmother, Miranda's late husband, Matt's mother, Bobby, to stay over at her place while the house is fixed. This, that's, that's about half of it, just in case you're interested in uh, checking out the rest of the plot somewhere. Are you still in Act 1 here? <laughs> <laughs>